We've recorded this episode of Speaking Out of Place on Saturday, the 18th of November, 2023, as Israel's massive attack on Gaza passed the 40-day mark. Almost immediately after the deadly October 7th Hamas attack, the image of the child, both Israeli and Palestinian, began to dominate the media's coverage, and appeals to international humanitarian law were made to save the children. Aziza Kanji and I decided to create this podcast to coincide with November 20th, International Children's Day, in order to take a deeper look at why such appeals to the law must be contextualized both historically and politically. In the midst of the devastating violence that the world is witnessing happening in Gaza, including the killing of thousands of children, we speak with Palestinian-American psychologist and professor Jess Gunnam and legal scholar Hedy Viterbo to discuss not only the violence against Palestinian young people, but Israel's weaponization of the very concept of childhood and the complicity of law in maintaining it. Jess, I want to ask you for... In the midst of the devastating violence that the world is witnessing happening in Gaza, including the killing of thousands of children, we speak with Palestinian-American psychologist and professor Jess Gunnam and legal scholar Hedy Viterbo to discuss not only the violence against Palestinian young people, but Israel's weaponization of the very concept of childhood and the complicity of law in maintaining it. Jess, I want to ask you first to describe the current situation. Get us into what you're seeing in, in Gaza, but also the West Bank, especially with regard to children. Well, the situation right now, and I've just been reviewing the latest statistics from OCHA, the situation on the ground in Gaza is nothing less than absolute catastrophe. It's grim. It's bleak. As of last night, the current uh, statistics, and we hate to use numbers in describing the kind of tragedy that's fallen on Palestinian children, civilians, men and women, but uh, over 11,000 people have been killed. Over 26,000 have been injured. And of the individuals that have been killed, over 4,500 have been children. Another 1,000 children are unaccounted for because presumably they're buried underneath the rubble. And because of the situation on the ground in Gaza right now, we can't even get equipment or people to bring the dead out of the rubble. There continues to be fuel, water, food and medicine blockade. In the last three days, there have been no shipments of humanitarian supplies coming into Gaza. It is absolutely earth-shattering and catastrophic, the amount of malnutrition and lack of food, water, and medicine that is being denied access to people in Gaza right now. There are over a million internally displaced Palestinians in Gaza right now. And what's really painful about that, if anybody knows the history, and most of your viewers and listeners know about the history, Gaza's already over 80% of the people living in Gaza are already refugees. So we're talking about individuals who are going on their second, third, and fourth displacement from their indigenous connection to the land in Palestine, specifically in Gaza. 80% of the hospitals are completely non-functional of the remaining hospitals in Gaza that are barely functioning. They don't have the supplies to actually do what they need to do to treat the wounded, the sick. They're, none of the hospitals have electricity right now, so physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals are doing procedures without anesthesia. They're using vinegar for antiseptic because there's no regular antiseptic available. So it's a very grim, it's a very bleak situation. And I think for Palestinians especially, that bleakness is manifested by basically world leaders turning their backs on what's happening to Palestinians right now, because it's important for all of us to realize that this is truly man-made. 
this is not a natural disaster that's causing the death and destruction in Gaza right now. It's really some world leaders who have decided to give the green light and okay a genocide and a mass assault on Gaza plus 42 days now that has gone unabated. So it's pretty grim right now. Hedy, images and claims about children have played such a prominent role in the carnage so far from the supposed quote-unquote videos of beheaded Israeli children that Joe Biden claimed to have seen later debunked, but that he then yet continues to cite as evidence of Hamas's supposed barbarism, to then the devastating images of the premature Palestinian babies taken out of their incubators, all huddled together on a bed, which somehow has yet been turned and weaponized into Israel as yet another means to demonstrate its supposed humanitarianism, with Joe Biden claiming that Israeli soldiers invading Gazan hospitals are actually bringing in incubators to the children, as if the denial of electricity doesn't render those incubators useless as well. And so can you talk a bit about how these images, claims, arguments, and weaponization on Israel's part of children and the suffering of children, how that functions against the backdrop of what you explore in your book, not only Israel's violence against young people, but its manipulation and weaponization of and in the construction of the category of childhood itself? I think part of my argument in, in this regard is that when we think critically about what Israel is doing, we have ready-made criticisms sometimes in terms of Israel supposedly violating accepted international legal standards and Israel robbing Palestinians of their childhood. We have these tropes ready-made. Part of what I've tried to show in my research is that actually Israel has been pursuing a much more sophisticated and perhaps troubling strategy quite often, which is to use some of these tropes and especially the language of child rights against Palestinians. One example that comes to mind recently is that when the Israeli military raided Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, the, the largest uh, hospital in Gaza, according to recent reports, the troops told all Palestinian males aged 16 and over to raise their hands and go to the courtyard where they reportedly, about a thousand Palestinian went out and Reportedly, some of them were stripped naked, some of them were assaulted. What we see here is a logic according to which once you are above a certain age, especially if you're male and if you're Muslim, it doesn't help. There's this image of the Muslim men as by proxy a combatant. Now, that is related to the logic of child rights. Part of the way in which Israel uses the logic of child rights is to legitimize essentially violence against those who are non-children, especially if they're men. There's this neglect of the vulnerability of Palestinian men. Part of what I find troubling in, in my research is that we critics of Israel sometimes replicate and reinforce the same logic. When we talk famously about children and women, we unwittingly may end up legitimizing that logic, whilst also, by the way, infantilizing Palestinian children because they themselves quite proudly, and there are many examples of this, consider themselves part of the resistance, part of the national movement. And all of this doesn't mean that they should be harmed, obviously, but it does mean that kind of this binary of age doesn't do justice to issues of political agency and vulnerability and innocence. So that's one recent example in relation to harm to adults. In my research, I, I provide many other examples, but one that comes to mind just to illustrate how the logic of child rights has also been used against Palestinian children relates to Palestinian political prisoners, which is something that has recently become very relevant because when Hamas 
kidnapped Israelis, they immediately made a demand that, saying that they were willing to exchange all hostages for all imprisoned Palestinians. We know that offer hasn't materialized and the Israeli government, according to reports in the Israeli media, has refused that offer so far. We know that many of these imprisoned Palestinians are incarcerated without charge or trial. The others are convicted in Israeli military courts where the conviction rate is 99.76%. But previously, Israel held Palestinian children and adults together in prisons. This attracted a lot of uh, criticism. And following the criticism, Israel has shifted towards increasingly separating the children from the adults in line with international legal norms. And this example in my research actually shows how this was detrimental to the children because the adult political prisoners actually protected them previously from abuse and violence from the Israeli prison authorities. And they assisted them in various ways, which Israeli authorities obviously don't do. And we actually have testimonies of Palestinian children, former detainees themselves, speaking about how these Palestinian adults were a source of support and empowerment. And again, just to bring into the conversation the dominant discourse of human rights, I show how even human rights NGOs that quote these children actually ignore what the children are saying and then push for a policy that runs contrary to the reality and needs of these children. So essentially what I'm saying, there's something very troubling here in the way in which Israel co-opts the language of childhood and child rights, but I think it also requires us to be very careful about the sort of tropes we use when we try to tackle and kind of counter and criticize some of what Israel is doing. I'd like to pick up on this idea of a binary that you introduce and then ask Jess to comment as well, because as you show in your book, Hedy, the binary is very flexible, right? The binary shifts with alacrity and agility when Israel decides to use it. And yet the international human rights community is very easily duped or complicit in this. And I'm thinking about, and these are horrible examples, the notion of shooting children and the way that category becomes visually murky and chronologically murky. And there are all sorts of built-in excuses. I was confused. They act this way, that way. So even though there are supposedly very strict declarations that they will be complying with international law, they don't. And then the other example that you put next to that is the malnutrition issue. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that's manipulated. And then I'd like to have Jess give his thoughts. Thanks. Maybe starting with uh, the latter issue of malnutrition. And again, that's very relevant in terms of understanding the context for what's happening now. We know that as part of turning Gaza into an open air prison, uh, what Israel has done repeatedly is kind of place quotas on the amount of food and calories that Palestinians can consume, which a form of biopolitical warfare effectively. And the way in which Israel has justified that is by claiming that this is actually very lawful and, and even humane. And in order to do that, what Israel did is quote the Fourth Geneva Convention, which is considered a cornerstone of international humanitarian law. Because if you actually read the convention, and that's the bit that Israel quoted, it says that during times of armed conflict and siege, the warring parties must ensure that children under the age of 15 receive essential foodstuffs. So what Israel did essentially is place food quotas on calories, which were stratified by age groups. It placed different restrictions on different age groups. And in this way, basically hijacking the, the logic of international humanitarian law, the logic of child rights to justify state violence. Now, you rightly say, David, that part of the power and the, maybe the limitation of both law 
and childhood is that on the one hand, they can be very binary and fixed. And on the other hand, they can be very fluid and flexible. And the problem is that the question of who decides, who gets to decide whether it's fixed or flexible and in what context, usually those getting to decide are those with the power, those who enforce the law, those making claims on behalf of the law, or those effectively with the greater military might. You alluded to the example of firing at uh, Palestinian children. We know that officially Israeli rules of engagement say that Palestinians under the age of 14 should not be fired at. But as you mentioned, uh, part of what uh, my research shows is that the question of age and childhood and the question of who really looks like a young child, according to the Israeli military, can be very flexible and context specific. And it's very difficult to actually expect. So we're told by the Israeli military, it's very difficult to expect from soldiers as they fight to be sensitive to age and childhood. So there's something here on the one hand that is unique, perhaps, to the Israeli-Palestinian context. But on the other hand, it does teach us something about the broader structural limitations of thinking about these categories, especially if we want to protect people through these categories of age and childhood. I think this is an important discussion. And one of the reasons it's an important discussion is because part of the twisting of the narrative right now is that all of this is happening now after October 7th, right? The, the, the malnutrition, the starvation of Palestinian children just started after the war was prosecuted by the Israeli military on, on Gaza. But the reality is, and especially since 2006 and the emergence of the siege and the blockade in Gaza, Palestinian children have actually been subjected to this starvation diet, which is, as Hedy said, very carefully crafted and calculated in such a way as to only allow enough calories to survive for Palestinians and for Palestinian children, but never to thrive. And that's been going on for decades in the Gaza Strip and more intensely since 2006. The World WHO and the World Food Bank have been describing the devastation of food insecurity among Palestinian children and, and not just in Gaza, by the way, but including the West Bank, but it's more severe in Gaza, where 70 to 75 percent of Palestinian children live on less than $2 a day, which is extraordinary when you think about it. I've been doing field work in Gaza and going to Gaza for over 25 years now. And what I've been able to observe over that trajectory of seeing that is that with the blockade, you've seen this transition away from whole foods grown, developed by indigenous farming techniques in Gaza by Palestinians. And because of the blockade, the food has transitioned to high density carbs, processed foods, sugars, things like that. So there's this very sinister calculation that the Israelis engage with in terms of nutritional restrictions on Palestinians in Gaza, they restrict the number of calories, but the diversity of the food that's actually being allowed into Gaza has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades. So the combination of those two things for children in Gaza and in the West Bank, I might add, is this stunting that goes on for Palestinian children. You know, that the growth curves, when you look at the growth curves of children in Gaza, they fall well below the world average of terms of weight and height. And I think it's important to realize that when you look at the larger context, that this is a deliberate, well-articulated policy of the Israeli government in their process of ethnically cleansing and trying to uproot and remove Palestinians from the connection to their land and from the land itself. 
and I didn't even get a chance to talk about it in terms of the update, but the way Palestinians, the way we understand what's happening in Gaza right now is it's Nekba 2.0. The mass displacement of Palestinians in Gaza right now, the numbers of people who are living in tents, who have no shelter whatsoever, the images uh, of Palestinians, men, women, and children moving from the north to the south on foot in the midst of this military bombardment and military rage that's going on right now is when you look at the images, it's a painful reminder of the same images that we saw in 1948, that we saw in 1967. And this is the next iteration and development of Plan Dalit, right? That the Israeli military and Israelis had in 1947, 1948 of displacing Palestinians. And this is the, the their new plan. And uh, people know about this who know about history. We have Israeli ministers now openly talking about this as for Nakba 2023, which speaks to, again, the devastating flexibility of colonial laws where Palestinians are prohibited from using the word Nakba, but Israeli politicians can use the word Nakba only as a form of threat against Palestinians. Jess, Hedi spoke about how human rights languages and critiques often converge with the language of the state itself. And one example of that we've been seeing is in discourses around the potential radicalization of Palestinian children, so that Palestinian children are not simply represented as innocent in ways that strip older Palestinians of their innocence, but are even still depicted as themselves being a form of threat, so that the immense violence that is inflicted against them is represented as problematic primarily for creating a threat of violence emanating from the colonized people themselves. We know that this is convergent and resonant with a discourse that's been deeply embedded through the so-called war on terror, including through the participation of people in the Psy discipline, psychologists, psychiatrists who have cloaked this language of radicalization in an ostensibly scientific medical guise. And so can you speak a bit about the problems with the concept and framework of radicalization for thinking about the harms being inflicted on all Palestinians, young Palestinians and older Palestinians in the current context as well as more broadly? Well, this is a really excellent question. And if you'll indulge me a bit, I actually have a lot to say about this because I think it's so critical. And it's going to relate back to an example that Hetty gave at the beginning when he was speaking. So look, one of the cardinal essential elements of normal childhood development for children all over the world, this is transcultural, is that children, in terms of normal development, have to have a sense of agency. They have to have a sense that they can have an impact on their environment, they have an impact on their world, that what they do can cause and promote changes. That the idea that you would deny a child agency, a sense of their purpose and position and positionality in the world and deny them any kind of possibility of engaging in the world and having agency and having an impact on the world is extremely detrimental to childhood development. We know that it crosses every single culture. This is fundamental tenet of good, appropriate, normal childhood development. The Israeli language, the settler colonial language, the narrative that all Palestinian children are being radicalized is an attempt to create this narrative, this trope, this understanding, and this imposition on Palestinian children that they should accept their fate as colonized, that they should accept their fate as being slaves in a master-slave relationship, that they should accept their fate in the settler colonial project 
that Israel has been engaging in since 1948, and it's an attempt to disempower Palestinian children and Palestinians in general, I might add, but it starts very young, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And the concept is every child in the world should have a sense of agency except Palestinian children, because if Palestinian children have agency, that gets equated with radicalization rather than a normal attempt to exert some ability of, and as I said, agency in the world to resist all of the matrix of control that settler colonialism engages with Palestinians, the Israeli settler colonial project. And Hedy uh, gave a really good example of what they did in Al-Shifa uh, in the hospital. They took out Palestinian men and stripped them down and, and humiliated them. That's really an important point in this discussion of radicalization and what's happening to Palestinian children. And having done this work for such a long time, one of the classic Israeli kind of, in my opinion, most kind of devious psychological manipulations that they do, and we all know this, is that when the Israeli military raids a Palestinian home in the middle of the night, the structure of the assault is always the following. They take the father of the house they separate the father from the women and the children. And what they do with the father, they strip him naked frequently, they make him go on his knees, and they absolutely humiliate and disempower the father in front of the children. That's the structure of the night raid for every Palestinian that's gone through that experience. Now, what's the purpose of that? The purpose is to show young Palestinian children, girls and boys, that your father is impotent, that they cannot protect you, that we are the strong and you should listen to us. We have the power. This has been going on for decades. And the negative psychological impact of this, of the structure of this kind of assault on the empowerment of Palestinian fathers and Palestinian men has really been quite devastating over the decades. Now, there's been resistance to that, but it's part of this overall picture that has been going on for decades and decades, which is, and this is the message of the settler colonial project, you should just accept your fate as a slave in this settler colonial project. You should not resist. Resistance gets equated to radicalization. And that has to be broken. That has to be unpacked. That has to be completely challenged because that's been the dominant narrative of the Israeli apartheid project, I should add, for many decades now. And it's very insidious. Just as you were speaking, I was, of course, struck by, in the United States, lynching. That the same kind of logic of a public display, exactly. collective empowerment. Hedy, did you want to say anything about this? Yeah, just to add and also to speak to what uh, Aziza was uh, asking about earlier, one of the examples I mentioned earlier was how Israel segregated imprisoned Palestinians on an age basis in order to fragment them and then make the children more vulnerable. Interestingly, I, I, I tried to understand what was driving this from the standpoint of Israeli authorities, and we can speculate about some of the motivations, but Israeli judges have actually said very explicitly that the motivation there was to sever the generational transfer of knowledge, especially Palestinian political knowledge, because imprisoned Palestinians for years have talked about Israeli prisons as a political university or school. Those are the phrases they have used as a place in which collectively they have gained political consciousness. So that's something that Israeli judges said very explicitly. They were resolute to stop. And the logical counter 
radicalization, de-radicalization was very prominent there. The idea was that uh, there's no hope for the adult Palestinians, but the children could still be saved, de-radicalized and created as this new pure uh, generation that doesn't resist and that isn't uh, political in the same way. Now, again, to me, what part of what's troubling is that there are some parallels with the way in which critics and the human rights community also think about some of these issues. So mm -hmm. in my latest uh, book, I have quite a large section thinking critically about the way in which human rights organizations use the language of mental health, especially the concepts of trauma and loss. And one of my findings there is that quite often NGOs, when they try to plead on behalf of Palestinian children and especially to convince Israeli authorities to change their conduct, they argue is that Israel actually has a self-interest in making sure that Palestinian children are not traumatized because if they are, they will be radicalized and they will turn into security threats. So in this way, the, the language of mental health and trauma actually reinforces the Israeli national security logic. It does some other things that are problematic, but I think here in, in terms of thinking about issues of and, and trauma and resistance, that does require us to rethink the way in which we use those discourses. Well, since Jess is a professional, I was wondering if, if you would like to respond to that. Oh, I think it's an excellent point. I think that's an excellent point as how NGOs and even the big funding that comes from the United States, USAID, if you look at the structure of the proposals that they put out there, frequently they'll say things like de-radicalization, de-traumatization, doing these things, using that same language, trying to encourage or promote the idea that if you don't do this stuff, speaking to the Israelis, this will reduce the radicalization. It's a such a twisted logic. It completely feeds into the narrative that the Israelis have constructed and rather than challenging it, because there's another thing that gets spoken about a lot in the NGO world is how resilient Palestinians are, how resilient Palestinian children are. And that is used as kind of like a cudgel, like we shouldn't do so much for Palestinian children because, oh my God, look at how resilient they are. It's a completely bogus way of understanding the experience of Palestinian children the experience of Palestinians, the depths of the things that they struggle with. So I think this whole area that we're talking about right now that Hedy alluded to in his research and that we're beginning to talk about right now is incredibly important because if you look at the funding streams coming from the EU, coming from the United States, coming from other countries, it's all under the guise of the same kind of narrative that serves the Israeli purpose rather than really trying to contextualize and understand exactly what Palestinians need. This gets into the larger discussion just about international aid and the purpose and the function that it serves. Does it really serve the community in Palestine? I have my doubts personally. So this is an incredibly important topic that we're bringing up right now. Well, as you all know, I'm a literary scholar, so I do narrative. And one of the things I tell my students is that narrative, that fiction accommodates contradiction. And that's one of its powers. But in this case, what you're getting is the sinister and cynical manipulation of narratives who want to have things both ways. And exactly. as, as Hetty pointed out, you know, who's in power, who can shape the narrative and at will switch out the different meanings of words as you change the context. And what this discussion is pointing out is that the international human rights community has been complicit in so many ways. Absolutely. It works to their advantage. And this reinforces the harm. So 
Aziza, I know that you've been working on this, so maybe you can phrase it in a more legal way. Okay, but I actually, I had another question okay. that I wanted to ask first. And first, just, you know, on Jess's point about international humanitarian aid being part of the problem, I think studies have found that something like 70% of international aid donated to Palestine ends up back in Israel's economy. And so exactly. it's just a way, yet another way of subsidizing Israel's occupation in ways that end up further enriching the Israeli economy itself. But the language of radicalization really recalls to me this whole line of settler colonial discourse, for example, representing indigenous young people as nits that must be eradicated because nits turn into lice, in the words of the settler slogan, or Andrew Jackson talking about indigenous children as the quote unquote whelps of wolves and that it would be pointless to hunt down a wolf without also eliminating her her whelp. And so I'm wondering what putting this type of discourse that we have around Palestinian children in the context of other settler colonial situations might help reveal about the way that these categories function. Because as it's come out throughout this discussion and as raised by David in his last point, the categories are so flexibly and cynically deployed so as to really create a colonial catch-22 where you can't really appeal to either side of the binary without being damned. So appealing to the category of children for Palestinians leaves them treated as disempowered and presenting a future threat, whereas adults, too, are represented as being inherently violent in and of themselves. As, for example, indigenous people were excluded from the category of adults capable of giving consent, except for having the capacity to sign off on their own dispossession, or how enslaved Black people two were excluded from those category of adults who could testify in courts, except to testify supposedly to their own crimes or again to sign off on their own enslavement. And so looking at this from the framework of the way that these colonial categories have historically been deployed and the types of damned if you do, damned if you don't situations that they inevitably create, how can we then intervene in this discourse, particularly in urgent situations as we are faced with right now, without reinforcing these underlying dichotomies that structure and organize the violence in the first place. I, I think that's hours and hours of discussion because there's so much there to unpack. It's such a good question. And it really gets at the kind of new, improved settler colonial project that the apartheid state of Israel has developed. They learn from the history of slavery in the United States. They learn from the mass genocide of indigenous communities in the Americas. They have improved on it. And what they have brought to bear is a very precise, very elaborate psychological mechanism of creating a narrative where it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. And this gets into a larger topic that I have been talking about for years and years. And this is a problem of how unfortunately oppressed people can sometimes unwittingly, and their ally, unwittingly and unconsciously internally be colonized by some of these narratives. It's a big topic. I could talk forever about it. So I'll give you the short version, which is we have to be able to check ourselves as people who are committed to international law, who are committed to justice, who are committed to equality, who are committed to equal rights, to be very careful about how we unwittingly internalize the narratives of power and unconsciously and unwittingly internalize the narratives of people who are oppressing us or oppressing other people. 
because they seep into our understanding. They inform humanitarian law or they inform humanitarian aid organizations globally. And unfortunately, they also can inform, if we're not careful, building allies and communities of people who are wanting to resist this form of colonial exploitation in any kind of process that we engage in confronting the egregious and devastating impact of the settler colonial project in this new era by the Israelis. We have to know our history, obviously, but then all of us have to do what I call like a deep dive into our own process to make sure that we are very clear about, well, what parts have we unwittingly taken on in terms of our own narratives, our own discourse, and our own work? Because I do think that the process of decolonization has to start with mental decolonization first, because without that, it's insidious how this stuff gets internalized in all of us. I would add, obviously, colonialism has come in uh, various shapes and forms, but I think when we think about settler colonialism, famously, Patrick Wolf described it as being characterized not only by a project of mass settlement, obviously, but also by a logic of elimination. And I think that's crucial to what we're seeing here, cultural elimination and other forms, other aspects of collective elimination. And I was talking earlier about how generational continuity is so crucial to the survival of the collective. And that's really a large part of what, in various ways, Israel has been trying to achieve by treating Palestinian children sometimes, or conceptualizing them sometimes, as different sometimes from their adults. I, I repeated that sometimes because, as we've said, this is very conveniently fluid, this uh, distinction. Part of the problem for me here is that settler colonialism, actually when you hear lawyers talk about the issue in a legally framed debate, that's not the concept they would use. They would increasingly now talk about apartheid because apartheid is a legally recognized concept and they would talk about other legally recognized concepts. But part of the problem of framing any issue legally is that it excludes more, sometimes more crucial ways of understanding the problem. And I think maybe this commitment, just that you're talking about, of bringing to the forefront the settler colonial aspect of it all, is really also being able to highlight the limitation of the law in this regard and being committed to going beyond legal thinking. I actually published a few years ago a 65-page article just on this very question of indigenous child removal and Israel's policies towards Palestinian children compared. I focused on indigenous child removal in the U.S., in Canada, and in Australia. More recently, I also talked about, for example, the way in which China separates on a large-scale Muslim and Uyghur children, especially in Xinjiang. And there's also increasingly a growing body of literature on how that is also an instance of settler colonialism. So there are even broader parallels that I think the concept of settler colonialism helps us understand. Interestingly, by the way, I was talking about Palestinian political prisoners earlier. In the past, many of them would take courses with the Israeli Open University because that was allowed within Israeli prisons. A few years ago, that was banned. So they're no longer allowed to do that. Very interestingly, the most popular course that imprisoned Palestinians took was a course titled Genocide. And it was essentially a course critically thinking about the history of genocide in a comparative cross-national, cross-contextual perspective. And part of what that course talked about was indigenous child removal. Part of my own thinking about this is trying to revive, in a sense, this encounter that Palestinians in Israel prisons had with potentially comparable forms of settler colonialism. And we know that Palestinians, to the extent that they were and still are 
able to form study groups behind bars in Israel, we know that a lot of their studies have to do with learning about the history of colonial oppression and anti-colonial resistance. So they are very much aware of this conceptual framework and the parallels and lessons that it can offer. So I think in a way we're doing justice to their own project of political consciousness by bringing this into the conversation. That's a really good point that Hedy made. Child separation, it's such a key component to this Israeli settler colonial project. But I just want to, I want to make it a little bit more complex because it's both physical separation and psychological and emotional separation, right? So I think if we look at child separation in this more complex manner, you can begin to see the complexity of this attempt to create a wedge psychologically, physically, and emotionally between Palestinian children and their fathers, their parents, their grandparents, and their history. So if we can begin to wrap our minds around a more complex understanding of child separation, the complexity of this project that they're engaging with will reveal itself in ways that will help us resist it and push back on it and understand it in this more complex way. Thinking about the limitations of law in addressing these forms of violence so intrinsic to settler colonialism, we know that the law around genocide, for example, was specifically drafted by settler colonial powers such as New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, in order to precisely exclude these forms of violence, fearing that it would interfere with their efforts to civilize what they referred to as primitive and backwards tribes in the drafting histories that we see in the UN conventions around this. And so that even though child separation is listed as one of the prohibited acts in the Genocide Convention, it's only under very severely restricted conditions. And so the invisibilization and illegibility of settler violence in the law is not simply an accident or an aberration or, moreover, a reflection of, quote-unquote, neutral legal categories that exist as scientific truths out in the world, but rather a product of specific colonial drafting histories that compel us to think about why the law is so limited in recognizing these particular forms of violence in the first place. Obviously, there are problems with international humanitarian law. We always want to ask people this question because we're very skeptical about international human rights. But on the other hand, often people say, what would you do without them? What are the benefits? And the other thing that this discussion has led me to think about is what can we do beyond it? Right. In other words, what forms, as Jess said, the decolonizing of our own very embedded understandings of international human rights law? Can we latch onto that might be positive or at least adaptable? And then how can we act beyond it uh, in more capacious ways? I'll jump in. I think part of what characterizes the law and part of the power of the law derives from the fact that it denies its own political nature and its own violence. So I think part of what we need to do is to expose the politics and violence of the law. And I think once we do that, we'll also be able to use it more effectively. We were also talking earlier about how the language of trauma can also be co-opted. And I think potentially part of the limitation of psychological discourse is also that it can potentially depoliticize the issues or even decontextualize or individualize them. So I think part of what we need to do, we need to be committed to being political, which is something that the law doesn't want us to do. The law essentially part of its effect is to marginalize more radical and potentially more emancipatory alternatives. So I think that's part of what we need to do if we want to think beyond the law. 
Another thing I think as academics that uh, I know we're all trying to do is educate, but I think educating also to me means that even though I'm a legal scholar, in my teaching, I try not to educate through the eyes of the law because of what I was talking about earlier. Because the law, it's not just about genocide, as Aziza mentioned earlier. It's also about concepts such as self-defense, which is what Israel is now using to justify its war on Gaza. It's also the fact that the UN Security Council doesn't have any representation from Africa, from Latin America, or the world's most populous uh, country, India, which has more residents than most permanent members of the Security Council combined. And those that is the body that does a lot of the interpretation and enforcing of international law, including international humanitarian law, aside from uh, courts, obviously. But if we do think about courts, the International Criminal Court, looking at who has been indicted, it's mostly people from Africa and, as we know, and very recently Russia. So I think we need to think both about the limitations of the law, but also thinking in a way that is counter-legal and post-legal in the sense that it's very committed to a very political context, a very political history, and thinking politically about the future. I think that opens new horizons far beyond what the law allows us to envisage. Uh, I have to agree with most of what Hedy has said, and I think because a really important point is that when you take the political context out of the law, it, it gives this false sense that the law is somehow above politics, right? It's independent of politics. Obviously, that's a complete fiction. When you look at the asymmetry of how the law is used and how it's used in terms of the asymmetry of, the, of power. So I think that's a really critical point. But I think having discussions like this, I think having a critical analysis of international law and how it can be abused is really critical. But I think if we could find a way where the asymmetry of power in relation to who can use the law and how it can be used could be rebalanced in some way, I would really like to see that and work in that direction. I'm also just back to that question of the humanitarian law and humanitarian assistance. It needs to be completely restructured. We don't have time to talk about it today, but it would be a really great discussion to think about, well, how could we restructure international law? How could we restructure humanitarian law so that asymmetry of power is not as extreme? In changing narratives, perhaps one of the things that we concede too much is in acquiescing to the idea that law is what emanates solely and exclusively from the state, which is something we've seen being challenged by indigenous peoples across various different settler contexts who assert and insist that their legal traditions are law as well. And so perhaps in challenging the narratives in ways which reassert Palestinian sovereignty and agency, we can look to these other examples of indigenous peoples, not simply resisting colonial law, but reclaiming for themselves the right to make law themselves in ways that are liberatory and emancipatory and anti-colonial. Absolutely. Not just reclaiming, but owning it. And I think that's part of what Hedy and I are trying to say in terms of the contradiction between how fast things are going, but in fact, things are changing. And so there has to be this very dedicated, consistent kind of process of claiming, owning, and restructuring it in a way. 
to work against that profound asymmetry that we're experiencing right now. So absolutely. But I think Hedy and I are basically saying the same thing. It's devastating what we're seeing, but we're seeing change at the same time. The change may be too slow, but it is happening. And so that part of what we're hoping and wishing and advocating for is like a facilitation of that process of ownership and claim to the law that we don't have to just leave it to the state to decide what the law is, right? We can engage in a very different process with it. Can I just add to that briefly, uh, Aziza? Thinking about counter-dominant forms of legality, uh, I think part of what needs to be addressed is the political power imbalance we were talking about, but there are other risks, other pitfalls potentially, that sometimes come with law. For example, it's a very technical way of thinking about issues and solutions. And it's also potentially an exclusionary way of addressing issues and solutions, because if law is something to be interpreted, enforced and negotiated by lawyers, that means that most people cannot be part of the conversation. What we need is not only to address and counter the power imbalance, but also to reinvent what law is and what it looks like and how to democratize law, make it something that is available and accessible to everyone, that it doesn't require this form Mm -hmm. of expertise. But also recognize that legal concepts are always going to be fluid and they're always going to lend themselves to competing uses. They're not just going to show us the way to justice. Law is never going to just be justice. So we do have to recognize that tension. So I think the bottom line is that maybe counter-dominant laws can be part of the solution, but It does seem, even learning from history and how sometimes decolonial struggles have resulted in new forms of legality, learning from history, those alternative legalities have not been without their limitations. So we do need to be cautious about putting our hopes in the law generally. I would say I don't don't put my hope in the law. I put my hope in mass movements and people. First, I'm thinking also of how when we look to histories of colonized peoples and indigenous histories, we also have a very different conceptualization of law that emerges, which isn't this monovalent state-centric legality, but even looking at wild books, for example, on the impossibility of a Muslim or Islamic state, because Sharia was so disparate from what we now call law that to call it law is itself a distortion, but rather another completely different way of normatively organizing societies or indigenous legal traditions, which again are distorted by the very fact of calling them law. And so perhaps in these, we can find other ways of thinking about what legality or normativity itself means. So speaking of how we transcend these disempowering dynamics embedded in the law itself and this framework within which Palestinians are constantly made to demonstrate and prove their injury and death and trauma before the world, and yet it never actually seems to shift the underlying dynamics of the violence, the legalized violence that's inflicted upon them. So often we think that simply demonstrating the quote-unquote facts of the matter, showing the evidence of the harm, is enough to counter the violence at stake. And yet what we've seen again in the current context is that we have not only all of the supposedly objective forms of evidence, such as the images of Palestinians being buried under the rubble, the statistics that more Palestinian children were killed in three weeks than in annually all the world's conflicts combined since 2019, that even despite these forms of evidence, which are 
in some ways violent in and of themselves because they perpetuate the idea that these objective forms of evidence are more reliable than what Palestinians have been saying for decades and decades about their own oppression, but that even when we can produce these supposedly objective forms of factual evidence, the state and the international community still finds a way to deny the nature of what is happening, which speaks to the multiple levels of denial involved, that it's not only factual denial, but as Stanley Cohen laid out in his book, States of Denial, there's also interpretive denial, the way to deny the legal categorization or nature of what is happening, and then implicatory denial, so that even if it's acknowledged that forms of violence fit certain legal categories, the implications of that continue to be denied. And so in this context where we're facing this multi-layered architecture of denial and that it's not just factual denial that's at stake, but all of these other ways of denying what the meanings of those facts are, how might we think about the types of claims and arguments that we can make in the current situation that might actually shift and deconstruct this entire edifice of violence premised on anti-Palestinian elimination that we're seeing playing out so devastatingly at the moment. Jess, do you want to go? All the questions that are coming from David and Aziz are so good. Why don't you start? Because I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle, and maybe you could just come at it from the legal perspective first, and then I'll add on afterwards. Oh, wait, actually, something I forgot to say in the question was that how the law itself serves as an instrument of denialism. For example, the way that we see the discourse around human shields being used to not deny the killing of Palestinian children, but rather project the responsibility for it back onto Palestinians themselves in a way that is itself enabled by the law around uh, international humanitarian. But that's what's happening. We can kill Palestinian children and we can destroy hospitals because under international law, you can do that by this interpretation. It's so sinister. But I'm going to give it back to Hedy, and then I'll and then I'll go afterwards. A few uh, thoughts come to mind. Uh, Aziza, first of all, you said something briefly, I think, at the beginning of your question about how the forms of violence seem to be entrenched despite everything that critics are trying to do. On a more optimistic note, perhaps, I'm not sure if we're looking from a longer perspective, I'm not sure that things do remain as entrenched. I'm looking at the jury of the Jews in the U.S., and we know that there has been a generational shift in terms of being willing to readily accept Israel's claims. And those are claims about what's true and what's fake, what's real, what isn't. And I think the conceptual frameworks that many target audiences for Israel have are changing. Some target audiences are more important for Israel in terms of being able to deny and justify what it does. So there is a shift, and that shift tells us that things can change, and it's interesting to see what we can learn from them. I think when we think about things legally, the law is often, it looks at very specific incidents and very isolated solutions, rather than looking at these long-term processes and what they can teach us. What's also interesting is seeing how strategies of denial themselves shift over time. You were talking about Stanley Cohen's uh, uh, distinction between different types of uh, denial and also mentioning, and Jess, you talked about this, the role that the law plays in denying state violence. What's interesting to me is to see that Israel, so think about Netanyahu, for example, when he does interviews, when that happens with the foreign media, he often does use legally based denials. So making claims on behalf of the law. But increasingly, it seems to me that within Israel, It's not that crucial any longer when speaking to 
the domestic audience, it's not that crucial anymore to justify Israel's actions in reference to international legal standards. It seems to me that those don't hold the symbolic capital or currency that they used to inside Israel, nor does the Israeli Supreme Court, so nor do even national legal conventions. So that tells us something that the law can be used as a tool of denial, but it doesn't have to be used. It's only used when those using it believe that it has an impact on the target audience. For example, for Palestinians, obviously any denials made by Israel in the name of international law would not have that the desired effect because they don't accept the assumptions about the morality of uh, the Israeli uh, regime of control to begin with uh, and the lawfulness of it, perhaps. Mm. So I think there are some, it's kind of a meta answer in a sense. It tells us something about what denial, not only how we can address denial, but also what denial tells us about shifts which happen very slowly, perhaps, in the power structure, and they don't happen in a linear way, but things mm. are changing. Law is also very flexible, so it can also be used in competing ways to justify different things. Yeah, so that's what comes to mind. Yeah, I just want to dovetail that a little bit, because if you flip the criticism of the law serving power and being embedded in a political context and how it changes, the good news is that we see, at least in the United States, a rather dramatic shift in support for an understanding the question of Palestine. If you look at the polling data, if you look at individuals who are 35 and younger, in other words, those who grew up in social media, who had access to social media, who have access to direct information on the ground of what's happening in Palestine, their opinions about Palestine, their opinions and understanding about what's happening in the settler colonial project and their kind of experience of what's happening in Palestine and their experience of settler colonial project in Israel is very different than people who are 50 and older, right? So we do see, as Hedy said, we do see these shifts. And my feeling is, and my hope is, and my kind of inkling is that as those under 35ers get older and older, we are going to see this slow-moving shift that's going to occur at all segments of society, including the law, including who gets elected to representative governments. And it's just going to take time. Now, the unfortunate thing of that is that it's a race between the ethnic cleansing that the settler colonial project is engaged with right now and the attempt to eliminate Palestinians from existence and the cleaving, if you will, between Palestinian children and their parents. I'm so glad we talked about that today. The separation issue is really critical. So it's a race between this generational shift that we're seeing globally and the rapidity of the attempt of the settler colonial state to remove Palestinians. I think they understand that, frankly. I think that the one of the reasons why we're seeing the the kind of acceleration of what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank and the political shifts among Israeli politicians, they see the writing on the wall. And I think because of that, they are accelerating this attempt to basically ethnically cleanse the West Bank, Jerusalem and Gaza. And actually among Palestinian citizens within Israel, they're on the hot seat too. So it's a slow moving process and it's happening. That's all I could say from a slightly more optimistic standpoint. Well, Can I briefly add to that? Just to emphasize maybe something that I didn't sufficiently make clear in my previous comment, 
which is just kind of uh, revisiting Aziza's question. I think sometimes we hope that if we just present the facts, right. maybe a video, very compelling video, it will do the job. And we have so many, we've learned, we've seen in history so many times how that doesn't work, not only in the Israel-Palestine context. I'm thinking, for example, about Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, post 9-11. There were these images, but they didn't have the effect on the U.S. public that people thought they would do. Because it's not the facts themselves often that have the power to counter denial. It's not the facts. It's the narratives and the conceptual framework. So that's what I was trying to allude to earlier, maybe not being as clear as I could about it, is that I think the only way to effectively counter denial is to try to think about how we can effectively introduce critical narratives to global audiences. But I also said, I think that's happening already. As Jess rightly said, frustratingly, it's happening at a glacial pace with deadly consequences. So I am optimistic that change is happening, but it's happening at, at a frustrating, very slow world. I agree. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end this segment, actually. And one way to come back to at least referencing the point about lost childhood, lost land, is to advise everybody to buy Hetty's book. I did yep. look at that chapter very carefully because I think it's a marvelous way of raising the issues uh, that we've been talking about and also to look at Jess's work because we're all learning and I share your sense of both optimism and frustration, but I think that's the world that we live in today. We would perhaps have you back at some point to continue this because there is so much to say. Things are developed. So thank you very much for being with us in these very trying times. But I think that we've struck a very good balance between our impatience and our despair, but also pathways toward hope. So thank you very much. Thank that you was really amazing, both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys for doing this. Thanks I really for the appreciate invitation. It. Thanks for yeah, the invite. Yeah, we appreciate it. We really do. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.